0: Hello and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Craig Johnson and this week I'm continuing my mini-series, 100 Years of Fascism. This week is covering the 1960s. Now, as a whole, the 1960s are far enough away from the power and unfortunate success of fascist movements in the 1930s and 40s, and also far enough away from attempts to rebuild those movements by the people who were, you know, actually very specifically involved, say, in the organization of Nazi Germany or fascist Italy in the 1950s. So the 1960s are a period of rebuilding, regrowth, and the appearance of earnest neo-Nazi movements and organizations, as opposed to organizations that are more directly linked to actually having existed fascist organizations uh, in the 1930s and 40s. There's a little bit less of a coherent narrative here as a bunch of, you know, small groups and movements spring up and try to fill the space of extreme right-wing politics in most Western countries in the wake of their defeat in the 1940s and 1950s. This means that this episode is going to be one where i go sort of country by country talking about examples and i will be dipping a little bit further into sort of like para-fascist organizations organizations that are arguably fascist but aren't you know actually fascist things that relate to fascism or are quasi-fascist much in the same way that i did in episode zero of this mini-series where i talked about proto-fascism Now, the 1960s in the United States on the right wing was dominated by the KKK, by the KKK that was organized in order to protect Jim Crow laws and Jim Crow organized society in the South from integrationism and the civil rights movement. Segregationism and the KKK were extremely powerful forces in the South, uh, engaging in serious and prolonged acts of political violence and also much smaller, localized, somewhat personal murders and lynchings. Uh, This was the mainstream expression of quasi-fascistic politics and ideology in the United States at the time. Although again, this is not precisely fascism, uh, in that the KKK's goal was not to create a radical new country, but rather to restore one that they thought that they had lost. The KKK in the 60s was largely cracked down on by a pretty serious FBI effort uh, in the mid and late 60s. Its organization and size fell pretty rapidly throughout the late 60s. The 1960s is also when the American Nazi Party achieved its well beginnings and uh, in the late 60s through to the early 70s had a lot of growth and rallies. Uh, George Lincoln Rockwell was the person who founded the organization. I spoke about it in the previous episode. Uh, he made attempts to moderate the organization, uh, eventually leading to dissent from hardliners within it. Uh, Specifically, Rockwell wanted to change the party's name and did change the party's name from the American Nazi Party uh, to a somewhat more innocuous sounding name uh, in that it did not directly say the word Nazi in it. Rockwell for this was murdered by a party insider who wanted a more hardline, strictly Nazi approach to politics, and the organization subsequently disappeared in infighting. The 1960s is also when the white nationalist prison gang, the Aryan Brotherhood, was founded, uh, likely founded in 1964 in San Quentin Prison, although obviously because this is a prison gang there aren't uh, exactly uh, official records uh, or documents to refer to, Um, this is all operating off of oral history. Uh, the, The Aryan Brotherhood is famous for being a prison gang that was organized essentially by white prisoners to oppose and uh, in their opinion, deal with the fact that the United States prison system was being integrated in the mid-60s. The Aryan Brotherhood has since become the largest white nationalist prison gang in the United States system, and is involved in crime both in and out of the penitentiary, crimes that range from drug trafficking and smuggling to murder and extortion. In the United Kingdom, the 1960s sees the foundation of one of the most successful neo-Nazi organizations in the United Kingdom, the National Front Party, which was founded in 1967. It was founded by a man named A.K. Chesterton, who is a relative of G.K. Chesterton, who is a famous nationalist, idiosyncratic, poet, author, person from the United Kingdom, uh, who also wrote the Father Brown Mysteries, you know, the, like the ones with the with the sort of like doddering priests who solves murders on Netflix. Anyway, A.K. Chesterton was a fascist, uh, and he was disaffected with the uh, dissolution of the British Union of Fascists, Oswald Mosley's party, and so he founded the National Front Party, whose goal was to try to make fascism somewhat more palatable and a little bit more organized in the wake of the defeat of the Nazis and the Italians. While the party had some local successes, it never achieved a seat in Parliament or in any other regional body, uh, and instead spent most of its lifetime clashing with leftists and other different types of British nationalists. In Germany, the 1960s saw the formation of the National Democratic Party of Germany, which was an openly fascist post-Nazi party uh, that has never gotten any seats in the Bundestag, which is the German parliament. Although in the 1960s, it did hold some seats in local parliaments throughout Western Germany. The party was less radical then, however, because it was sort of occupying just the right-wing position in general due to the coalition government uh, that was currently dominant in West Germany. Since then, the National Democratic Party of Germany has become more openly fascistic, although today it is a lot less important as a right-wing force in that country. Argentina is one country in Latin America and in the world where there were very many open fascist organizations and people in the 1960s, and this is something that I actually study specifically in my academic work. One of these organizations is called Taquara. Taquara in Argentine Spanish refers to a sort of makeshift spear, which in Argentine national accounts was used by peasants in Argentina's independence wars against the Spanish. So probably the most obvious referent in the United States would be the Minutemen, something like that. Anyhow, Taquara was a pretty standard fascist organization. You know, they sort of combined street thuggery with intellectual uh explorations on the part of the membership that was, you know, a lot of dissident youth, you know, overeducated, downwardly mobile white men, uh, the exact people who come to be part of fascist organizations, small or big. taguara remained relatively small throughout most of its history, although it did pull off some pretty daring stunts, uh, such as several bank robberies, um, some assassinations, Uh, They also commandeered a transatlantic flight and landed it in the Malvinas, or Falkland Islands, uh, as a protest against the United Kingdom's control of that particular archipelago. Taquara eventually fell apart, like most small fascist organizations do, by infighting. Uh, Specifically, there was a faction in the organization that wanted to remain like pretty much extremely right-wing, you know, extreme right-wing Catholic nationalists. And there was another part of it that uh, wanted a little bit more rapprochement with some left-wing organizations, you know, some of your more uh, conservative union organizations, specifically uh, the establishment left Peronist organizations in Argentina. However, much more influential than Teguara was uh, the Revolución Argentina, which was a particularly right-wing military government, which took Argentina in 1966. It was particularly influential and important because of its like extremely serious right-wing ideology. It was first run by a general named Onganilla, And his intention, along with the other people in the Junta, was to establish not just like a temporary military government that would, you know, prevent the left from taking power or that would stop a particular electoral or political outcome that they didn't want. They wanted to change Argentina's national trajectory in a serious and long-lasting way. That's why they called themselves a revolution, you know, as opposed to like, you know, the reorganization something or something like that, right? Their intention was to remake the country, and that makes them a little bit more fascistic than a lot of other people. You know, they, they self-identified as revolutionaries. However, what they actually engaged in mostly was sort of lowercase l liberal reforms, right? You know, getting the government out of the economy. Uh, a couple sham workers' rights reforms, mostly uh, working with already corrupt workers' organizations, already corrupt unions. They also engaged on serious crackdowns uh, against dissidents both on the extreme right and on the left. The Revolución Argentina eventually dissolved in the early 70s, which would eventually pave the way for the very tumultuous history that Argentina would experience in the 70s and 80s, but I'll be getting to that in a later episode. Moving on to another country, South Africa was in the midst of the serious growth and establishment of the apartheid regime in the 1960s. Now, while the apartheid regime wasn't itself necessarily fascist, there were a number of fascist organizations operative in South Africa at the time. One of them, for example, is the uh, Herstegait National Party. Uh, my apologies, I do not speak Afrikaner. Uh, this was an Afrikaner identity organization. Uh, The Afrikaners are a subgroup of white South Africans, specifically who do descend from or claim to descend from the Dutch colonists in South Africa prior to that region's uh, takeover by the British. Afrikaner identity organizations and Afrikaner parties have typically been associated with the extreme right in South Africa and also with people who very, very virulently support uh, apartheid. And uh, this particular party, uh, the Herzegäte Party, uh, is no different. It was a post-fascist organization promoting Afrikaner identity and also shoring up the apartheid regime. It was also involved in a sort of network of Afrikaner organizations who either supported the maintenance of apartheid at all costs or even doubling down and having a significantly more repressive system, or people who wanted to secede and for their part of South Africa, which is typically the northern part of South Africa, uh, to secede and become its own country, something that had been attempted uh, several decades prior and also in the 19th century in what is called the Boer War. Finally, speaking of countries that had an experience with fascism or something like fascism in the 1960s, there's Portugal and Spain. Now, Portugal and Spain had been under the thumb of right-wing governments since the 1930s. In Portugal's case, this is the Salazar regime, and in Spain, it's the Franco regime. Both of these organizations, both of these political movements were not fascist themselves, although they are related to it. Now, I've spoken of the relationship between the Franco government and the fascist parties that emerged in Spain in the 1920s and 30s, the Salazar regime is relatively similar, although in that case, the Portuguese political movements of fascism were significantly less powerful and much smaller than that of the Spanish ones, and so there was no need to like have a formal alliance in the sense that the Falange was the official political party of Spain during the Franco dictatorship. Now, in both of these cases, however, both in Portugal and Spain, the 1960s were a period of moderation, uh, were a period of opening up, especially as both countries' economies became increasingly integrated into the, uh, you know, really developing engine of European economic cooperation between France and first Western Germany, and then eventually in the 90s, Germany itself uh this economic integration back into the european economy and then the world economy would make a lot of these regimes think twice about repressive things that they were worried would get them kicked out of some of these agreements although of course this did not stop them from continuing to be incredibly repressive uh and to continue to support for example exclusively catholic education to suppress queer rights to suppress workers rights to suppress the rights of people to uh criticized the government. However, uh, relative to the extreme and open political violence of the 1930s and 40s and 50s, this was a period of decline of the power of these kinds of regimes. So that's the 1960s in fascism. It is a sort of chaotic period of experimentation, a sort of back-to-the-drawing-board time in the wake of the defeat of fascism in the 1940s and the end of the sort of like most clearly like continuation type organizations uh, that experienced some growth and moderate success in the 1950s. What we will be seeing moving forward is that this experimentation in the 60s will really catch hold in the 70s and 80s as some of the more successful organizations that emerge from the experimentation and chaos of the 1960s you know, gain a lot more power and influence and start changing some national conversations and what people understand to be normative politics in the post-war era. And that is where we're going to go next week. All right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, and I'm Craig Johnson, thanking Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for our intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe, leave a review, or, you know, comment on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Tell your friends, family, and comrades about the podcast. If you really enjoy the podcast, check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 fascism. That's 15 minutes of fascism, all one word. 15 minutes of fascism, all one word, and spelled out is also where you can find me on Gmail. You can also reach me on Twitter at histoftheright or at fascism15, again, that's 15 uh, all spelled out on Twitter. All right, I will talk to you next week with the history of fascism in the 1970s.